Thank you for tuning in. We trust you will feel encouraged, uplifted, and inspired to build God's kingdom with us. Enjoy the message. Um, we're going to go into James chapter 4, so if you can turn there in your Bibles, um, it will be good if you keep it open there, because we're going to refer to it quite a, quite a few times this morning, and um, then you can just look in your own Bible. I don't have all the verses on the screen, so that's important. All right, this morning... I wanted to start off by saying to you, how many of you love or, or, or really enjoy a good love story? Now, I know all the ladies, I can see it, you're all nodding, well done, well done. All the guys, you're thinking it's probably more pleasant to be attacked by a swarm of killer bees than have to go through a love story, isn't it? Hey? But uh, this morning I want to use a love story as the backdrop to the James chapter 4, which I think is, you'll see as we unpack it, that, that, they, that there's a parallel. But you all know how a love story works. You know, it's some lady who's stuck in a place like Paris, and she's lost and confused, and she doesn't know where to go. And on the other side of the road, there's this guy who looks like he's just walked out the men's health magazine, and um, he, they lock eyes, and the world stops, and birds sing. And, and then all of the, he comes across, and he asks her, how can he help her? And she tells him the story that she's so lost. And he says he'll make sure that she gets to where she needs to be. But before she gets to where she needs to be, they end up in the most romantic restaurant. And they talk the whole night. And in fact, it's like they've known each other all their lives. And they're completing each other's sentences. And everybody's happy. And they're all happy. And they're in love. And they get married and have kids. And everything's just fantastic. But in the story, what happens is that a loser comes along normally. And starts to find, she, her heart begins to drift from her husband to some other man. And you know, when you, we're watching these stories or when we're reading these books, we think, what is she thinking? What is she thinking? You know? And then her, her husband finds out and he, he declares his undying love for her and that he wants her back. And you know, many times the stories end in different ways. Sometimes she sees all this love that is declared by her husband and she returns to him and they live happily ever after. But other times she feels so guilty and so condemned and so unworthy because of what she's done that she doesn't go back to him, not because she doesn't want to, but she just doesn't feel like she can. And then obviously you get some crazy ladies who, who end up with a loser. And so as we unpack James chapter 4, I want you to think about that story because there's a, there's a parallel here. So let's read together from verse 1, um, and I'll pick up the, from verse 2 in terms of the preaching. But James chapter 4 verse 1 reads as follows. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with this world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? He, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
This portion of the scripture I've split into three parts. The first part is the problem part. James is identifying a problem that every single one of us have. And then there's a bridge where he talks about grace and then he talks about a solution. And the solution is that we draw close to God with the problem that we have. So what is the problem? You know, when you and I came to know Christ, we fell in love with him. You see, we, that story of the two of them falling in love is a story of me and you. When we come to know Jesus... You know, at that point when you came to know Jesus and you, and, and you were drawn to him because of his love and his kindness, and you started to understand what unconditional love is, wasn't there an exchange that happened in your heart? Wasn't it that you started to think like this? No longer I, but Christ. Lord, I want your purposes for my marriage. I want your plans for my marriage. I want your purposes for my career, for my children, for the way I spend my money, the way I spend my time. God, it's about your will, not my will. And we echoed what, what Paul teaches in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as we, can you remember that time? Can you remember when you met Christ? Can you remember when that exchange happened in your heart? When you started to say, Lord, it's more about you. It's about what you want, not what I want. God, it's, it's, it's your world in all the aspects of my life, not what I want. And this beautiful exchange began to take place. But like in the story, James starts to warn us that there is a tendency within us to drift away from our first love. And there's two things that he highlights, which um, from verse 2 it starts. The first thing he highlights is the thing that's going to draw your heart away from God is a love for yourself. He says this, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You see what happens in our lives is if we're not careful, it's no longer God, what do you want and what's your will and purposes for my marriage, for my family. It's Lord, what I want for my marriage, for my family. And a transition begins to take place. A drifting away from our first love begins to take place. A move more away from God, what is it on your heart, what is your purposes, what is your plans, more to God, what I want, what do I deserve, what's good for me. It's very subtle, but as I speak it, I'm hoping as I, as, that, that you identify with that, because I think we all do, that it's so easy to drift from our first love in that way. The second thing he identifies is in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this word friend is an important word because it doesn't mean a casual friendship. It means a fondness or a love or an affection. And so what he's starting to, to unpack for us is that, you know, when you fall in love with Christ, you have an affection and a love for him. But if we're not careful... And if we don't understand that there's, there's always going to be this tendency in our hearts, we start to replace that again with a love and a fondness and affection for the things of this world. And so James very skillfully puts these two, these two elements alongside each other. And he says to us, this is what we are like. This is what we are like. We fall in love with this amazing God. But before we know, we drift back to wanting to serve ourselves 
and wanting to have the things of this world. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so we see how this unpacks in our lives. You know, when we're in love with Christ, there's no problem to come to church. But when I'm in love with myself and, and there's this drifting away and it's more about me or it's more about the world, all of a sudden we find other things that are more important for us to come to church, to read our Bibles, to pray. When it comes to the decisions we make, the, the way we use our money, the way we use your time, you know, when you're in love with Jesus, the first thing you ask is, Lord, how do I use this stuff for your glory? But when you start to drift away, it becomes what's good for me, what's, what do I want in this world, how does this work so that I can get what I want to get? And it's so subtle, but it's so real. The interesting thing that James says to us here in verse, uh, back end of verse 2 and into verse 3, he says the place that we see where we're drifting is in our prayer life. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend on your own passion. So he says two things. He says that we begin to drift and we'll see it because we stop praying. Why do we stop praying? Either because you know what you're praying for is wrong and so you're not going to ask God. You know, there's, there's a saying, rather ask for forgiveness than, than for permission. And sometimes we treat God like that. We know it's wrong, but we're not going to pray about it because we know what God's going to say, so we'll do it and then ask for forgiveness. Or, or sometimes it gets even more hard-hearted. We just don't think we need God in that. We just don't think that God, we can do it ourselves. I can rely on myself. I can, I can, try, I can sort this thing out. The second thing he identifies in our prayer life is that we ask with the wrong motive. And, and I, I don't have the time to unpack that, but I can ask a question to, to get into context is this. If our motives are right or wrong, this is what will identify what they are. If God had to answer all your prayers at the moment, who will benefit? And if the answer is only me, there's a problem with your prayer life. You see, Jesus says that when we pray, there's a priority to prayer. And those people in love with God will pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. You see, the priority is God in our prayer life. God, you build your kingdom. You use my life. But, but the good news is that it does carry on. It does say, give us today our daily bread. So it's not wrong to pray for what you need. But it's wrong when that's all your prayers are about. Because then all, all your life is about is what you want and what you need. And there's no real heart for the kingdom of God and what God wants to do through your life. And so our prayer life is a mirror of where we are. I was reading a story of a man, and I'll put it into our context, who had a, a, the wrong prayer life. He prayed this, Lord, I bought a house in Eagle Canyon. I pray there'll be no storms. And the house that I've got in Rampark Ridge, Lord, I pray that there'll be no major things that happen in Rampark Ridge that will devastate the value of houses there. And I pray, Lord, in this new house I've just bought in Santon, Lord, please would you keep that house? It's, there's a mortgage there. But the rest of the country, Lord, may your will be done. You see, so don't we pray like that at times? Isn't that the way we approach God at times? And I think that, that we must listen to what we're praying because it's going to give us an indication of where our hearts are. You see, the conclusion he makes is this. In verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Now, that isn't nice of James to say that. But it's true what he's saying. You see, because he's now picking up on an imagery of a marriage. 
And he's saying this, he's saying that God has always shown himself in the scriptures as a picture of a husband with us as his bride. And so when we start to fall in love with ourselves or we start to fall in love with this world, we are being adulterous because we actually belong to him. You see, the point is this, is that God created us, God saved us. And so we do belong to him. We're his. We're not this world's and we're definitely not ourselves. We belong, to, we belong to God because of what Christ did on the cross. And that's why he says we are adulterous by heart. Because we so easily fall in love with self and this world. You see, verse 5 says that God is a jealous God. And, and often I've struggled with that. I thought, God, it's such a negative thing. But as I have unpacked it over, over time, I began to realize what what. what it means that God is a jealous God. You see, God isn't an envious God. An envious envy is when you want something that's not yours. But jealousy is when you want something that actually belongs to you, but is now with somebody else. So God is a jealous God. God's jealous over you. God's jealous over what he, the, the spirit that he's put in you. He's jealous over your life and your soul. He doesn't want you to fall in love with, with these things that take you away from him. He wants you to belong to him. That's why he's a jealous God. And so James tells us that here's the problem. We are wretched, adulterous people at heart. That's who we are. And as we've unpacked this book of James, I don't know how you have felt, but I have felt this way, is that every time there's a sermon preached and I go home, I go, I really am terrible at that. I really don't know how to use my mouth properly. I really don't live my faith out like I should. I really don't use wisdom. I always go for worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. God, help me. I don't know if you felt that, but that's how I felt at times listening to, to, to this whole portion on the book of James. God, help me. I am a sinner. Would I ever get it right? How am I ever going to get this right? Paul. Right, in Romans 7, and I won't read it, but there's the principle he said. He, he, he unpacks his own challenge, that although he knows what is right to do, he finds that he always seems to do what is wrong. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that we want to do what's right before God, but before we know it, we're doing what isn't right before God? We want to say the things that are right but we then end up saying the things that are wrong. We want to do the things that are right, but we end up doing the wrong. We want to think the things that are right, but we start thinking about things that are wrong. And he concludes and he says, O wretched man, who will deliver you from this body of sin? And so the problem that James puts before us is that we are wretched and we are idolatrous at heart. And so that would be a terrible way to end a sermon. But in verse 6, he starts to present grace before he tells us what the answer is. You see, the answer is that although we are wretched and adulterous, the right thing to always do is rather go back to God. But what I found in this world, and what I find that where the, where the devil has a field day with Christians, is that Christians believe that they are so wretched that they can't really go back to God. Because it's the 54th time today that you've said something horrible to your husband. Now, how could you ask your God to forgive you the 55th time? 
or you keep on struggling with the same thing. And, now, and so we come to this conclusion that our performance and our merit is not good enough for us to actually draw into the presence of God. I want to tell you that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because what, when you look at what James is teaching, that is the conclusion that you and I can make. Is that we don't deserve God. We don't deserve to go into the presence of God. But verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, James is telling us that even though at times we'll make the conclusion that we're wretched, man, how can I go to God? How can God forgive me? Whatever, whatever that might mean for you and the way that you process it in your life. He's saying the only reason you and I should go to God is because of who God is, because He's a God of grace. And so let's look at that this morning. You see, in every religion in this world, it's performance or merit rated. Uh, merit, um, can't, can't think of the word. It's by merit. You see, it's man trying to work his way to the favor of their God through works. You become a monk, you go and sit and don't talk to people for a long time. You hit yourself, you go and pray three times religiously a day, all those kinds. Of, it's works to find favor with your God. Now, Christianity is, got, is nothing like that. Christianity is this, it's the opposite. It's a loving God, a gracious God, that is attempting to get man's attention through his grace. Very opposite. It's about God trying to get your attention to tell you how much he loves you. And wants you to respond to his love. You see, grace... The concept of grace in the Bible demonstrates a God that's love is in action towards men who merit the opposite. You know what you and I deserve because of our sin and because of how we have rejected God over time, right from the Garden of Eden? We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. It's, it's no, that, that should be the consequence of, of our behavior. But you see, grace is a God that moves heaven and earth so that sinners who can't save themselves find love and acceptance and ultimately eternity in heaven. That's what grace is. You see, grace has got nothing to do with performance. Many times we think if we read our Bible more and if we pray more and if I do more of this and more, God's going to love me more. No, God loves you the same when you're a rotten sinner to whether you spend 24 hours in prayer every day. Because the Bible tells us this in Romans. It says that, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means God poured his love out onto you and over you and opened up through grace a, re a relationship with him, not because of anything you did, but because of he chose that that's the way it would be. And all he wants is a response from mankind. You see, there's nothing you and I could do or say or think that will ever be worthy enough to merit the love of God. We have the love of God because of grace. Why is this important? Why, why does he put this transition there? He first shows us how wretched we are, and then he tells us to draw close to God, but he puts in the middle, but God gives more grace. Because you and I will only respond to God through our understanding of who God is. So if I see God as an angry man who wants to bash people all the time because they're rotten sinners, it will be very difficult for you to go on your knees at night and go, God, I just want to draw into your presence. I've had a 
terrible time. I feel far from you. I've done this, I've done that. But I know that the right thing is for me just to come to you. But if you've got the wrong perception of who God is, you never do. Then you sit far from Him. And you don't actually draw close to Him. But you see, if you understand God for who He is, a gracious, loving God, no matter what you go through, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. If you've got the right concept of God, you will always feel that you can go boldly into His presence. It sounds weird because we live in a world where love and acceptance is always based on performance. But God is nothing like that. I want to express it to you through a story in Exodus where Moses went up to, a, up to a mountain and he left the Israelites at the bottom for 40 days. While he was gone, you know what they did? I mean, God had done so many amazing things for them. You know what they did? They built a calf, a golden calf, because they are idolatrous at heart. And they begin to worship this calf. And Moses comes down, you know the story, he makes them drink the gold. I don't know how that worked. But... God says to Moses, he says, I'm, I'm not going to go with you anymore because of the stiff-necked people. And I don't think it was because God was angry. I think God was trying to teach Moses something. I think God was starting to show Moses, this is what this people deserve. And so Moses is confused and he, and he cries out to God. He says, God, I don't understand that you would leave us like that. Let me understand what your heart really is. Let me, give me a glimpse of your, gra- of, of your glory, he asks. He says, give me a glimpse of your glory. Let me, let me get, get a glimpse of who you really are because I don't know who you really are. And so, like us, there's this idolatrous people that run after other things instead of remaining faithful, belonging to our God. And Moses says, God, what are you like when your people are like this? And God responds, an interesting portion of Scripture. You know why it's interesting? Because yet God says himself saying what he is like. The other portions of Scripture, it's people saying God says this. But yet God responds in his own. And he says, this is what I'm like. He says, it's in Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding and steadfast in love and kindness and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So if you had to ask me today, in my rottenness, in my wretchedness, in my idolatrous heart, how would God respond to me? Well, this is how God will respond to you. He says, I'm a merciful God. You deserve punitive action, punishment for your behavior. But I won't give that to you. Because I always will accept you back. He says, I'm a gracious God. Grace and mercy are different. Mercy means that you don't get what you deserve. Grace means that you get what you don't deserve. So, so, so this is how you understand it. You know what mercy is? Mercy is that you don't go to hell. Grace is that you go to heaven. He says, I'm a gracious God. I give to you what you don't deserve. I'm slow to anger. Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know what? God will never give up on you. He's slow to anger. He's not moody. He doesn't have three strikes and you're out. 
You can come to him the 54th time that your child has driven you mad and you feel that you failed. And, and he'll, he'll, he'll bring you into his arms and he'll love you because he's slow to anger. He's abounding in goodness. He's always going to be good to you. He's always going to be consistent and reliable. His love is perfect. He abounds in goodness. He's faithful. 2 Timothy tells us that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It means this, that his faith has got nothing, his faithfulness to you has got nothing to do with your faithfulness to him. Isn't that shocking? That God will love us so much that he remains faithful even when we're not faithful. He's a God who forgives. As far as the east is from the west, he removes our transgressions. You can come to him and he'll forgive you when you confess your sins and repent. And interesting enough, the last one is that he's a just God. Yeah, there is consequence to sin and we have to go through the consequences of our sins. But I hope you, that you see that out of this list of one, two, seven, six of them speak about this abounding love of God. One of them speaks about there is a consequence to some of the decisions we make in our lives. You see, Moses is saying to him, this is what God is saying to Moses, is that when my people are idolatrous, when my people's hearts drift, when my people move towards self and to this world, this is how I am towards them. It's most appropriately described in John 8 with a woman that's caught in adultery. Remember that story. What did she deserve to be stoned to death? How did Jesus respond to her? Through grace. He said, I forgive you. Go sin no more. You see, grace will always lead in God's relationship with you. John 1, 14 to 17 tells us about Christ who comes to earth. And it says this in verse 16. Now let me go back to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the Son from the Father. And look what Jesus is like. He is full, 100% full of grace, and 100% full of truth. But what leads? Not truth, grace. Grace. When you look at John 3, 16 and 17, we see that God's love as he sends his son to die for you. But verse 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What leads? Grace. And so I want to say to you today that no matter what happens in your life, no matter where you're at, no matter how you feel about God, he's not this angry God. He's a God of grace who's merciful to you, towards you, who's abounding in love towards you, who's slow to anger towards you, who pour out His grace upon you. He'll forgive you. I asked, I, I was struggling and I was saying, Lord, how do I, what, what illustration can I use? And God just, just said to me, you know, you're dead. You're dead. You know, if your daughter's, do things that are wrong. How do you want them to approach you? I said, I want them to come. Who can I pick on? Okay. Kylie, come here. You're not a daughter, but you're a son. And, and I felt God say, how would you want your, your children to approach you when they've got it wrong? I said, Lord, I want them to come close to me. And I want them to tell me what's wrong so I can love them and help them. Where do we get that as human beings? Because that is the nature and the character of God. That's where we get that from. 
I was listening to a sermon and Jimmy Evans was reading a letter that he wrote, which summarizes this whole point. And I want you to listen to it and I want you to hear this morning. This is a letter of who God is to you. Is it coming? See, this is God's letter to you. Dear child, I realize you've had a difficult time understanding who I am because of mistakes your parents made, as well as the negative influence the fallen world around you has had, has had on you. So I want to tell you firsthand who I really am so you can understand me and relate with me intimately as your father and best friend. First of all, I am very compassionate towards you. I don't just see what you're doing. I know why you're doing it and that you can't change without my help. I can also see what the devil is doing to attack you as he is trying to defeat you. I see what others have done to you in your past and even now. I wish you would understand that I don't stand back and judge you. I want to be in your life helping you because I love you so much. I also want you to know that my help is free. You don't have to deserve any of it. My son died on the cross to pay for all of your sins so that you can relate to me without merit or performance. My throne is the throne of grace and all you have to do is believe in my love and ask for my help and it will be given to you generously in every area. I will never desert you under any circumstances. I will be with you forever and will never reject you. I am good natured and never change. I am never in a bad mood or have a bad day. I am the most consistent person you will ever know. You can trust me. I will always be good to you because I am overflowing with goodness that I want to share with you. My plan for your life is good and that will never change. I will never lie to you, deceive you, trick you, withhold information from you or break a promise. I will always relate to you based on the truth. When you fail, I will always forgive you and totally remove your sin from the record. My grace is greater than all of your sins combined, past, present and future. And my mercy toward you is renewed every day. As your father, I have rules that are there for the purpose of protecting you and causing you to grow as a person and as a believer. If you violate my rules, I will deal with you graciously, even as I discipline you at times. My correction is motivated by my love for you. Never interpret my correction as anger or rejection. I love you too much to allow you to damage yourself or others without attempting to help you and get you to a better place. I love you more than you can know in this life. My desire is to reveal my love to you personally every day. Child, believe these words for they are true. Act upon them as you pray to me and believe me for the mercy and grace you need every day. And I will reveal myself to you in a new way. Sign, your loving Father. you obey like that? Amen. Amen. So when we see our wretchedness and as we see how we fail all the time, and although we may find at times that it's difficult to go back to God, what James is saying to us is that you can if you just know the grace of God towards you. That's why the solution is to draw near to God in, whenever you feel like you're missing it, when you're missing the mark or you're failing or whatever, whatever's going on. Because what would you not want to do what the next verse in verse 7 says? Submit yourself therefore to that God. If God loves you, wouldn't you want to just submit yourself to Him? Wouldn't you want to just resist the devil and all these temptations and all these nonsense to try and pull you? Just submit to God. 
with an understanding of who he is. Resist the devil. We've seen in James how he's spoken to us that we should resist the devil in telling us when we go through our trials that it's God tempting us. We must resist that. We We must submit to what God's doing through those trials as he builds our characters. We must submit to the word of God and resist the devil telling us to do it our own way. We must submit to the wisdom of God and resist the devil as he tells us to go to, into this worldly wisdom. We must submit to God and not, be, and not have favorites who, because we have favorites because we think we're going to benefit from them. Our, our resource is God. So we submit ourselves to this God that loves us and we resist this devil. And so we draw near to him in verse 8. The picture I used with Carl is what draw near means. When he came towards me, I didn't say to him, stay there and let me hear your story. I embraced him and said, tell me your story. That's what it means to draw near to God. The motivation is the understanding of who God is. That's why we draw near to Him. He then says in verse 8, He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinner, purify your hearts. You see, this is the response to the grace of God. You see, grace is not, the grace of God isn't a free license to do whatever you want. But grace demands a response. And the right response is gratefulness to what God has done, and for me and you to live our lives in such a way that we honor Him. I want to park here because there's a principle here that I, I just want to touch on. When He says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, is He just meaning that we must stop sinning? I don't think so. I think it's part of it. But I want to put something to you this morning. Is that when you look at the Word of God, what is God really wanting from you? He's wanting you to be the image of his son. There's two verses that that tell us that. Um, If you guys can move on. Move on. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, So all of us who have had that veil removed, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And this Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we change into His glorious image. You see, when God created man, He said, I'm going to create them in my image. You know what that means? It means that He's going to create us to have His character. He's going to create us so when people engage with us, they see Him through us. And that was broken through sin. And we see that God tried to do the same thing with Israel. He tried to take this nation and put his image on this nation. So when the other nations engage with him, they don't just see Israel, they see God. And what he's like and draws those people to him. Well, that's what God, that's our response to God's grace. You say, God, make me the image of your son. So that I can live in such a way that when people engage with me, they see you. And not a false not, not, a, not a skewed version of you, but who you really are. That's the response to this grace. That they would see grace. They would see mercy. They would see love. They would see forgiveness. They would see justice. And so I think that, that the response is not just one of not trying to sin, but it's a response of becoming something. A child and a daughter in an image of our Father. As I close this morning, let me take you back to the love story. 
You see, we are that woman who falls in love and so quickly can be lured by a love for what we want or a love for this world. And God is that guy who comes and he declares his love. But the question this morning is, which response is yours? Are you the person that says, God, I see who you are, and so even in my wrongness here, I will come back to you and make right with you and draw close to you? Or do you feel so unworthy that you see the love of God and you see all this stuff, but you feel like, I can't be forgiven by God? I want to tell you this morning that that isn't the right picture of who God is. He will always forgive you. He will always love you. He will always pour His mercy out upon you when you draw near to Him. Or are you just the one who says, this isn't for me. I'm going to spend my life with a loser. You see, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know this, that God wants you close to Him. Because you belong to Him. You're His. And He doesn't want to share you with this world or your passions and desires. He wants you to be His. Amen.